Welcome to episode 14 of the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or camera since the mid-1980s. I think of myself as the go-to for all things Little Rock and Arkansas, but I also like learning about other people and what they have to offer. That's why I started a podcast. My guest for this episode is the host of The Cold Podcast. He's broadcaster and journalist Dave Cauley. You'll get to meet him right after this. This message is for our Central Arkansas listeners right now to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Real estate, home selling, home buying, any of that kind of make you think, oh, I'm kind of interested. If you are, then you need to consider John Underhill Real Estate and the agent I want you to call is Brandy Harp. Brandy Harp is principal broker at John Underhill Real Estate, and she helps lead a team that has an outstanding reputation in central Arkansas. Whether it's your first time home you plan to buy, you know, these are historically low rates. People are buying so many homes that Brandy told me the inventory is low. But if this is your first time, to, your foray into real estate and buying or selling, these are the people you call. And Brandy Harp is definitely the agent you want to have in your phone. They are a full service real estate company. They're a boutique agency. What they do stands out. Find out more by going to my website. You'll see the banner ad for John Underhill at LisaFisherSaid.com. I'm on the website right now for Richard Harp. It's Richard Harp Homes. If you've heard any of my podcast, or if this is your first one, welcome. But if you've heard any of them, you've heard me talk about Richard Harp and the outstanding work he does as a home builder and remodeler in central Arkansas. If you go to his website, richardharphomes.com, you can get there through the portal of my website, lisafishersaid.com, and you see the different tabs. You can meet Richard, press and media, portfolio, let's connect in testimonials. Okay. Under the testimonials, this is where people go on and on. Richard listened to our needs, built our house down to the last detail. Someone else said we've hired Richard several times for various remodeling projects, highly knowledgeable and a perfectionist at his work. Remember that a perfectionist in his work, but also what I always say about Richard is the fact that he likes to get you under budget and under time. Not everyone can make that promise. Find out more by going to my website and seeing the ad for Richard Harp Homes at lisafishersaid.com. She won most talkative in high school and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. And I'm telling you, this thing, it, there are, le- there are, it's the onion and we're peeling the different layers off the onion and it's not ending. There's still more. So let's just start with the beginning. Tell me about uh, the Powell family. Absolutely. So the cold podcast really rose out of my experience as a radio journalist in the Salt Lake City, Utah area covering this case from December of 2009. There was a a woman named Susan Powell who uh, disappeared under suspicious circumstances. It was a a Sunday night going into a Monday morning. There was a big snowstorm that came through. Uh, Her kids, her two boys, Charlie and Brayden, always went to daycare on Monday morning. They didn't show up at the daycare. And the day 
daycare provider was uh, concerned enough that she tried to reach the family, couldn't get anybody, actually went by the house, knocked on the door, nobody answered. There was fresh snow on the ground, no tire tracks coming in and out, uh, out of the garage. So she called the emergency contact, which was uh, the sister of the husband, Josh Powell. Uh, this sister and her mom went to the house. They called 911. Long story short, Susan Powell has never been seen since uh, December 6, 2009. Her husband, Josh Powell, returned that uh, Monday afternoon with the two boys, saying they had gone out on a spontaneous camping trip after midnight on the Sunday uh, into Monday night, and he had no idea where Susan was. Um, that really set the groundwork for what turned into this just unbelievable saga that we saw play out in real time uh, here in Utah and up in Washington state over the next couple of years as police investigated this disappearance. Uh, ultimately, Josh Powell took his own life. He killed his two children. And uh, this really frustrated justice because nobody was ever held to account for what is widely believed to be uh, Susan's murder by her husband. And uh, everybody who might have known something has uh, basically at this point died. And the crazy thing about this story is no smoking gun. No one can account or saw that she was taken someplace. He, Josh Powell's the only person and his children, sadly, who knew the details about this. Um, do you think, I mean, I, I hate to pl point any blame, but is there any blame? Did law enforcement drop the ball on anything, Dave? What do you think? Sure. Part part of what I wanted to know when I set out to really tell this story in the cold podcast was wh what was happening behind the scenes? What did investigators know? When did they know it? And were there opportunities along the way where things might have happened differently? Um, I had the, the great opportunity to speak very candidly with uh, Ellis Maxwell, who was the lead detective on this case. And he talked about uh, some of those moments. There was uh, an opportunity actually Actually, the very day that Susan was reported missing, when Josh Powell returned uh, with his kids, they conducted an interview. It was clear that Josh was not being forthcoming uh, about what he might know. And the police had a discussion at that point about whether or not they should serve a search warrant on his home. Uh, they decided independently that they didn't have probable cause to get that warrant, and so they didn't pursue it. In retrospect, we know that uh, Josh Powell took some time that night after the police left to destroy evidence, to clean mm. up the home. Yeah. And uh, just really, uh, from that point going forward, it was it was chasing, you know, uh, Josh, but he was one step ahead. Um, as a news reporter, was this your beat? Did you cover this story? And do you remember then? Because as a news reporter, I've covered a million stories. Once in a while, they stand out. A few of them will stand out that you go, something's not right here. Did you think that from the beginning? Yeah, Lisa, absolutely. The The experience, I think anybody who's done day turn, you know, general assignment reporting in a, in a city of any significant size, you have the crime of the day, you have mm -hmm. uh, stuff that comes in. And then, you know, it's not even every six months or a year. Sometimes it's it's once or twice in your career. You have one of those stories that for whatever reason, it just jumps 
off the page at you. And and this was certainly one of those. Um, Josh Powell, his demeanor and the way he interacted with media in the days and weeks after his wife's uh, disappearance really kind of told you there was something going on here. I think many of us had an expectation uh, that this would be solved, right? The police would find a body, they would arrest Josh, and, and it would follow a kind of script. But as you mentioned at the outset, you know, peeling the layers back on this onion, we over time we learn more and more about Josh and about his, you know, his father, who turns out to be oh, the oh. ultimate creep. I mean, creepy McCreepster. I, I, I've <laughs> never seen a character like this. And we're going to unpack him in just a few minutes. Mm. But again, that doesn't mean a crime was committed, you know. Yeah. Just yeah. because your DNA is really bad. <laughs> yeah. And, and and there was kind of this veil of secrecy around the Powell family, right? Uh, mm -hmm. As things went forward, they, they did eventually end up talking to, you know, Good Morning America. They talked to Dateline. Uh, but those of us who had been dogging the story, you know, day by day, week by week from the very beginning, the Powells were not talking to us, Um and it wasn't until this case really went cold in 2013 and we started getting access to more of the behind the scenes files that uh, I was able to kind of piece together. This was really a story about domestic violence, domestic oh, abuse yeah. mm -hmm. that was happening in this marriage um, and, and going back and trying to give Susan an opportunity to tell her side of the story. And I think that's really what, for me, elevated it beyond just an oddity to something that, uh, quite honestly, has, has for me been very profound. Well, it is a profound podcast. How many episodes is is the original uh, podcast? Because it seems like you have addendums that you've added. <laughs> I, I tend to be a little loquacious. so uh, Yes, did, same. <laughs> we did uh, 18 hour-long episodes wow. as the main run. And then I've, I've come back with a series of about four or five uh, bonus episodes as we've continued to investigate and found new things. So uh, in doing these 18 hour long episodes, uh, did you go to the radio station there and say, guys, there's this thing called a podcast and <laughs> we need yeah. to jump on this because we have more information than we could possibly ever air on, on our radio airwaves. You absolutely nailed it. Uh, this was something that for me, I had been interested in over time. And it really wasn't until about 2015, 2016, you know, serial kind of changed the landscape. Right, right. Um, but a lot of the podcasting that was happening, I saw coming out of public radio, not commercial radio. Uh, mm -hmm. The company that I work for, KSL, we are a, a privately owned, uh, you know, commercial radio, television, web presence, uh, well known in our market, but not maybe well known nationally. And because of some of the nuance of this story with, you know, religious overtones and things like that, uh, I went to my news director and I said, look, this story has been told, has been told on national media, but nobody has done it justice. And we, I believe, have the opportunity to like dissect this beginning to end, put it in a podcast, something we've never done before, and put it out to the world, not just to our day-to-day -day radio listeners, but really to people across the country and, and I, I, across the globe. I mean, I've been surprised. I get messages from people in Australia and Ireland. I mean, all over the place that um, have connected with the podcast. And as a local broadcaster, that's been something that's been really remarkable. 
It really is a remarkable story to tell. So as you are unfolding, as we've talked about the layers of the onion, did you gasp? Because one thing that I, I really loved was how candid his sister, um, Josh Powell being, I mean, he's dead, so we can call him the perpetrator in this instance, and nobody's slandered or libeled, but um, his sister that he was estranged from, she mm-hmm. was very forthright, whereas the dad was so shady. Uh, but were you? did you know all that? Was that an element of the storytelling on Salt Lake Radio and TV during the time, or did you realize that during the podcast interviews? You know, we had obviously talked to a lot of people who knew Susan, who knew Josh, who knew, you know, Josh's dad, Steve. And many of them over the course of years had had said, hey, there was there was this weird thing where Steve Powell had come on to Susan, say. Um, But we didn't really have the full day to day look at it that came evident when we gained access to these police files, Um, you know, Almost everybody involved with this story was documenting their experience somehow, whether it was journals or, you know, video or audio recording and being able to go back then and reconstruct what had happened in the past uh, was a rather unique experience. So I I guess it's a bit of both. We had a sense that there was some of this other uh, information or um, history there, but nothing nearly as explicit as was uh, presented in the podcast. Well, let's just talk with the facts of the story. Um, You mentioned earlier that Susan Powell went missing on this day in 2009 after a foot of snow dropped. Now, I forget, was the origin of her story, was it Washington State or it wasn't Utah at that point, was it? Right, correct. Yeah, so Susan and Josh both grew up in the area. Um, it's it's a suburb of Tacoma, Washington called Puyallup. And they were both involved in, uh, at the time they met, activities for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, they lived um, there for the first couple of years of their marriage and then relocated to Utah in 2004. But who in their family, like her, her sweet parents, the Coxes, God bless them, yeah. and how they've suffered, were they the ones going to the media going, guys, our daughter's missing, and nobody's really taken this seriously? You know, it was a really interesting dynamic. In that first week after Susan disappeared, uh, it was really one of her neighbors, uh, a woman named Kiersey Hellowell. And Susan's dad, he flew down from Washington and uh, went in front of TV news cameras and and started talking about, you know, because Josh won't say anything, Josh isn't talking, somebody has to be out here advocating for Susan. And so uh, this friends and family group that kind of coalesced in those early days really took on that job of saying, where is she? Uh, privately, they were all thinking Josh was responsible, but nobody wanted to nobody wanted to spook him at that point. And so they were kind of treating him gently until uh, after, you know, two weeks of his wife being missing, when Josh packed his kids up in his minivan and said, you know, peace out, Utah, I'm driving back mm-hmm. to Washington. That was really, I think, when the tide turned. And uh, even those people who had suspected but not spoken out started saying, okay, Josh, what have you done? So you're saying the Coxes from the beginning treated him, well, yeah, it was their son-in-law and those are their grandchildren. Of course, you would treat him as an ally at first. You know, it, it, it was a, I think the campaign at the time was, 
Josh, please talk, right? Go, go sit down with the detectives, tell them everything, you know, uh, please just talk. And he wouldn't do that. He, after the uh, second interview that he did with the detective, he lawyered up and basically told them to take a, take a flying Mm -hmm. leap. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of his cooperation with the law enforcement. And when did all of those interviews, did they only become available to the public when, after you posted the podcast or were you all, were media getting to see him? Cause he was so squirrely in that one interview and then his kids were almost singing like songbirds. And I know that they're four and six or whatever their ages were and they weren't real reliable, but it, it made anybody watching that very uncomfortable. Did you oh, yeah. see that in the beginning in 09, 2010 or any of the beginning times not really the the investigators in this case were very tight-lipped which was part of what you know as a journalist uh when somebody is being so cagey about Mm -hmm. details it only increases Mm -hmm. my desire to know right (laughs) and so it wasn't until after 2013 when the police said you know case cold we'll never take somebody into the criminal justice system we have no idea where susan is here are our case files um when they released those case files, I was able to look through the transcripts of those interviews, and I reasoned, hey, if there's a transcript, there's probably a recording. Uh, so we filed a public records request with the police back then and asked for video of this uh, interview with Josh Powell, which was, I mean, it's like four hours long. And I sat there watching it just fascinated with his behavior and kind of the a cat and mouse game that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I'm sure you're familiar with, I had to distill that down into a you know minute and a half package for broadcast. I'm so sorry. I have no idea how you did it. <laughs> well, I, I didn't do a good job, <laughs> right? which is part of why I felt, you know, to do this story justice, we have to, we have to give it the time that it deserves. And even 18 hour long episodes, there are still more questions. And I say that because just recently we're recording this in December of 2020. Was it November last month, Dave, that 2020 did kind of an update? That's right. Yeah. And I hate to skip to that and not tell some other details, but I thought that was just kind of profound that this is there's still chatter about this story. There's no body. We have no, you know, we have not seen Susan Powell in any form, even, you know, I, I, we, we know she's dead. But tell me what you found out, what 2020 uncovered last month that was kind of news. Well, the, the interesting thing with, I think, 2020 is they had an opportunity to sit. Uh, so Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, they sued the state of Washington after Josh Powell killed their grandsons. Um, mm. There's a whole long history that I won't bore you with about the kind of the court battle back and forth for custody of these boys. Uh, but their allegation was the social workers in the state of Washington that had allowed Josh to have visitation with his sons at a house he had rented were negligent because that's ultimately where Josh murdered his children. Or we said he rented. Remember, we weren't even sure that he was paying rent there. He could have used it as a facade. Right. Like, we, I don't trust anything about him. Yeah, so so he, he gets this house. However he gets it, he sets it up uh, to present, hey, this is the safe space because I don't want to have visitation happening you know, anywhere else. I want it to be in, in my domain. And this ultimately ends up being 
the site of a, a double murder suicide. Mm, uh, mm. And so the the Coxes, uh, Chuck and Judy Cox, Susan's parents, fought for years for the opportunity to take their case to a jury and present those claims. And uh, ABC 2020 was able to be there through uh, the entirety of that trial. And uh, ultimately, it resulted in a just gobsmacking, uh, nearly $100 million <laughs> right. verdict on right. behalf of her parents. Um, but then the judge that heard that trial came back and said, you know what? Uh, the jury got it wrong. That's too much. I'm going to cut that by two thirds. And uh, so, you know, th- to see the long tail of this story, how uh, the systems that were really involved in putting those kids in danger are still uh, resistant to change in the in the view of, you know, Susan's parents. Um, this is something I think people are going to be talking about for a long time. And I'm, I'm not shocked at all that, you know, somebody like uh, ABC 2020 was able to take two hours and and kind of just give people the very high level view of the case and why it matters. Well, and a broad theme, umbrella theme of this is that the system fails people every day. You know, the, the the Coxes, I'm telling you, when I heard the episode when, even though I know the punchline, I know what's going to happen, but realizing then I, I'm a parent and a grandparent, like I can get choked up talking about it, thinking about how they were like, we tried to raise those kids and they've been, we, we were denied, you know, our bloodline in this. But I just thought about after hearing that, that this happens probably not that exact case, obviously, but that children are slighted every day in um, whether it's foster care, whether it's trying to get custody, and it just broke my heart. So it it makes me ask the question, so what what was the judgment, the final judgment? Uh, So the jury came back and they did say, yes, there was negligence on the part of, of Washington's social services agency. Uh, The individual social workers themselves had basically been exempted uh, from responsibility by the federal court. Um, The judge, when he reduced the the verdict amount, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $33 million. Uh, But, you know, the, the Coxes feel like that was a slap in the face. Uh, yeah. a, a jury had yeah. said, yes, there was this uh, gross mm-hmm. negligence. And, and they, they're they less concerned. What they have told me is that they're less concerned about the money because they really don't have much use for the money aside from trying to help other victims of domestic violence. What they want to do is affect change uh, to prioritize safety of children in circumstances like this, which are, as you point out, I mean, they are rare, but... They are not so rare that they don't happen uh, mm-hmm. in, in our court systems. So they, yes. they, they want to see change. Yeah, very, very sad. Okay, now let's start um, pulling down those layers of that onion and starting in the first episode. So I'm trying to think. Um, this dropped in 2018, right? Was that like the winter or fall of 2018? Yeah, November of yeah. 2018. Right. And so those of us that follow any kind of true crime, you know, we're, we're on the thread that says you got to listen to this. And, you know, you're, uh, you're gasping as you listen in the car, wherever you listen. And that's just the first few episodes. And then uh, Creepy McCreepster, once we <laughs> learn about him. So the reason is from the very beginning. So why don't you set it up? Susan 
Cox Powell was, you know, the sweet little girl, member of the uh, Latter-day Saints Church. She meets Josh, who's already some, who thought he was some kind of player, but he never, he was, had never had a real job, did he? Jo- yeah. So Josh, if we look at Josh's history, which was a, a real mystery to us at the time, um, you know, what happened was going through the police files, I discovered that they had seized uh, Josh's computers with some search warrants. And over time, they had recovered some of these files, which included audio journals that he had recorded uh, back in, you know, 1998, 99, 2000, uh, around the time that he met and married Susan. And so what that allowed me to do was really look at his past. Uh, I was able to discover that Josh Powell, yes, he had had a, a troubled childhood. He had been uh, v- deeply affected by his own parents' divorce and struggled to connect with any girl that he was interested in. Uh, there was an ex-girlfriend, a, a woman he had dated named uh, Catherine, who he had tried to eliminate from these records. He, he went in literally with white oh, and yeah. crossed out mm-hmm. her name. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody had ever talked to Catherine before, so I was able to locate her, speak to her, and what she revealed was that this was a pattern of behavior. Uh, Josh would exert this kind of coercive control over any girl who uh, you know was in a position to get close to him, and Catherine was able to escape. Um, I think what clearly came out in the first couple of episodes of the cold podcast was Josh learned from that experience. Then when he met a young Susan Powell, who, you know, is fresh out of high school, uh, doesn't have a lot in the way of, of life experience at this point, he's five years older than her. He's able to quickly manipulate her, uh, so that within six months of dating, they're now married. Uh-huh. And because of, uh, her religious views, she views marriage as being for time and all eternity. I mean, this is a, this is a serious union. Um, and that is something that has a profound impact when she years later realizes that she's in an abusive marriage and is considering divorce, trying to figure out how to get out of it. Yeah. And the abuse, um, some of it stemmed to me from, again, he was just no count, didn't really have a job. Remember she was making all the money. He was spending all the money. He was pushing her out the door to go to work every day. He wasn't really doing anything. So just from the very beginning, you kind of see his character. And Ab- did did she at that point, Dave, didn't she seem like she told some people that she, though she wanted to be team marriage, you know, hashtag team marriage. But what, didn't she have some doubts at some points in early in their relationship? Uh, very quickly. I think it wasn't long after they were married that some of Josh's quirky behaviors really started to come into sharper focus for her as problems. Um, you know, his inability to keep a job, right? So he uh, he has his own apartment. He has a job at the time they meet and get married. But very quickly, you know, he is in a fight with the uh, apartment management. So they get evicted. He loses his job. They have to move in with Josh's dad, which is a horrible situation for Susan. Uh, and here is her husband who is showing just no motivation, no ability to go out and uh, set himself up in a way that allows them to be independent in their marriage. Uh, Instead, they are now very dependent on Josh's dad, who has his own uh, horrible motives for wanting to... Oh, yeah, he's thrilled. Oh, yeah. 
He's thrilled that it has come to this point yeah. because, I mean, the, the truth is he thinks that Susan, how delusional is this guy? He thinks Susan's in love with him. He does. Uh, it, he deeply uh, believes, I mean, to his core, he thinks <sighs> that he and Susan are going to end up together in in a marriage of their own. And uh, whether that's in some kind of a, you know, shared situation with Josh or whether, you know, Blech. Josh just gets tired of her and, and divorces her and Steve can take her in. And of course, Susan, for most of this time, has no concept that he has these kinds of thoughts. Um, when he does finally confess his feelings for Susan, we discover Steve Powell is a voyeur and he has been Ugh. surreptitiously recording her for months and he records the conversation where he tells her, you know, I, I really, uh, I'm in love with you and, you know, what do you think about this? Um, that was a piece of tape. I can tell you, Lisa, I, I hunted for years for that tape because I, I believed it was an opportunity for Susan to tell us in no uncertain terms what oh, yeah. she thought. And what I hear listening to that piece of tape is that she is horrified uh, by this advance from her from her father-in-law. Completely, completely horrified. Why hasn't he been charged then? Because those are crimes. So the interesting thing with Steve Powell, um, it, it, <laughs> he did a lot of things that I think we would look at and say, well, that's clearly criminal. Um, mm -hmm. When in fact, by the letter of the law, sometimes they were not. Um, wait, it, what? Wait, 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 wait. He was recording her. Remember, so, he was videotaping her. Remember, he knew, I'm not even going to get into some of the details that he knew about her. Right. He Certainly, certainly some of his behaviors, uh, spying on Susan when she's in the restroom, things like this. Right. Those, those are criminal, but uh, all we have as far as evidence for, for some of those crimes are his own descriptions of it. And you have to remember Susan as the victim at the time we discover this, she's gone. So oh. you can't bring her into yeah, a court. Yeah, that's and, true. Yeah, true. And, um, but, you know, Steve oh. Powell is also out in public. Uh, he is in the back of his minivan with his camcorder filming random women as they walk in and out of the mall. Uh, what eventually does get him in trouble with the law is he filmed the uh, underage girls in a, in a neighboring home through a bathroom window. Right. Police discovered that, and, and that ultimately led to his being incarcerated. Is he in custody now? He is dead. He. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. He yeah, got yeah, yeah. he got out of prison, um, yeah. and then in 2018, shortly before actually we were supposed yeah. to release our podcast, he uh, he had a heart attack and died. Where was uh, Josh Powell's mother? I don't remember any mention of her. Yeah. So Josh's mom um, has never agreed to an interview. Um, I certainly tried. I mean, it was my my responsibility to reach out to her and I heard in no uncertain terms that she wanted nothing to do with, with me or the podcast. She, at the time Susan disappeared, was living with uh, Josh's older sister, Jennifer here in Utah. And uh, she has kind of remained in the area. Uh, I don't want to be too specific considering sure. her, her sure. privacy, but yeah, uh, the last I knew she was, she was still here in Utah. Oh, so let's talk about um, the one sister who really gave us a lot of great information. Yeah, Jennifer Graves. Yes, yes, Jennifer. Jennifer, so if you look at uh, the family, the Powell family, Jennifer is the oldest. Josh 
came next. And then he has a few younger siblings. There was John, who was just a year younger than Josh. Uh, and then he has a, uh, a brother and sister, younger brother and sister, Michael and Alina. Um, Jennifer, being the oldest in the family, she was in a position when uh, Steve and Terry Powell divorced to basically make her own decision on what she was going to do. Uh, she had met a young man named Kirk. They married and they left. They kind of uh, divorced themselves in a sense from Steve Powell and some I mean, of the other you? kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and, and so Jennifer, Jennifer here in Utah becomes one of Susan's closest friends when Josh and Susan uh, move down here. Now, Josh and Jennifer are they're on speaking terms. Uh, you know, they get together for family events and things. But this shifts after Susan disappeared uh, because Jennifer strongly believes that Josh had something to do with it. Uh, to the point that within a, a couple of months, she actually approached the detectives and said, Hey, I'm going to go visit uh, my dad up in Washington and Josh, who is living with him. Why don't you guys put a wire on me and I'll confront him and ask, you know, what he did to Susan and see if it um, if it leads to a break for us. And she went in there like my heart was racing. Listen to that, because I was thinking who could do I couldn't. I, 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 but I've never been faced with that situation. But I again, I over empathize. So I'm thinking, how could you walk in there to a sibling and ask those questions? You have to really be sure of what you're doing, because remember how defensive he got and how well, of course he would be. Oh, yeah. And was that when was the dad in that conversation? Yeah, he was. Yeah, so, right, right, right. I mean, it, it, listening to that recording, it is fascinating because she, Jennifer Graves walks into a den of wolves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're having a, a family dinner and everybody is uh, pretending that everything is normal. You know, they're not talking about Susan, even though it's the obvious thing that they would all be talking mm -hmm. about. And uh, when she finally pulls her brother aside to ask him, you know, okay, what have you done? Um, we know from some other documents that, in fact, Josh's brother Michael is is listening through the door, uh, trying to see, you know, what, what Jennifer is doing. And ultimately, Josh slips out of the house. Um, Steve Powell, the father, stays behind, and this erupts into a shouting match on the lawn where he's calling his daughter all kinds of uh, right. you know, four-letter right. words. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's uh, just heartbreaking for Jennifer. Because until his death, he defended his son, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Because wasn't there a confrontation between the Coxes and Steve Powell, like, at the parking lot of the... I, yeah, I, I remember what it was, but I'm sure because I, again, I remember listening to that, going, "This is insane that he is defending his son, or he was angry at the Coxes for confronting." Is maybe more what happened. But Steve, he, Powell, Steve Powell had, I mean, so I can just tell you from having read that man's, uh, you know, journals, from having l watched hours of his just horrifying home videos. Uh, he lived in an alternate reality uh -huh. and he was, he was somebody who when confronted with information that he didn't like, or that didn't fit his narrative, he could twist in his own mind, uh, the story. So he believes that, you know, <laughs> he believes that Susan has left the country and is living in 
Brazil <laughs> going to nude beaches and, you know, her dad, oh, because he was a pilot and worked uh, with the FAA, had, you know, had secreted her out of the country. Just bizarre, unfounded beliefs. Yeah, he, he believed his what his mind was telling. I mean, that's just the sign of really a sociopath, psychopath, you know, yeah, all the things. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's go back to the night of the crime in January. It was January of 2009, correct? Uh, December 2009. Or December, okay. Because I remember one of the things, it was a Super Bowl mm-hmm. uh, when they got the call or something else, so I couldn't remember. Um, so Josh Powell takes his family, and what he says is, what he comes back later to say is, they went camping. Did he say that she went? I had forgotten now. No. So his story was on the night that they left uh, to go camping, he had had a conversation with Susan uh, sometime around, you know, 10 midnight. And uh, he said, hey, I want to go out to the desert. I'm going to take the boys. I want to test out a uh, generator that I bought. And he says Susan was fine with it and uh, just went to sleep herself, which... And that was supposed to be like a Sunday night? Correct. Yeah. And that's odd that he would take the... He would take his kids out where they weren't a, a part of their routine daycare or school for the week. And obviously, you know, he had no job obligations. Um, and he had a rental car, right? Wasn't that part of the... Well, so, so um, how this happens is Josh at the time does have a job. And oh, that's right. He when, did that. Yeah. When he no shows for his job, clearly that's one of the the steps right. the police take is no, uh, calling his place of work, and they say we haven't seen him. So when he returns on the Monday afternoon uh, and is confronted by police, uh, one of the things he says is, "Well, I got mixed up. I thought it was Saturday right. night, not Sunday <laughs> right. night." Um, oh which, my gosh. Which is clearly not true. I mean, he he knew what day it was. Uh, there's there's ample evidence. Um, even Steve Powell in his journals talks about you know this is such a baloney story. After that uh, that night, so the night of Monday, December seventh, we know Josh destroys evidence. Um, on Tuesday the eighth, he actually went in for a follow up interview with the police. At the conclusion of that interview, they served search warrants on his home and minivan, and that is when Josh went out. He uh, obtained a rental car and he disappeared for eighteen hours. To this day, nobody knows where he went, uh, but we know that when that rental car returned, it had eight hundred seven miles mm. added to the odometer. So in your mind, what are the geographical points that happen on Sunday night? So the story that Josh told was he went out uh, to a place in Utah, a a vast area that we we generally call the West Desert. Um, Specifically, he had gone camping a couple of times before on a specific road called the Pony Express Trail. And the story that he tells is he went down the Pony Express Road, you know, 20 or so miles. He pulled off at a, at a location, had a campfire with the boys the following morning, and then came back home. Um, the police were able to actually locate some sheep herders who did see a minivan matching the description of Josh Powell's uh, in that area at that time. So it seems likely that he was truthful in saying that that is where he went. Uh, that being said, it is a strange place for somebody to choose to go at that time of year, especially with, you know, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. No, they were two and four. Yeah, yeah. they were really little. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, how were they four and six then when they died? Uh, let's see. So it would have been. Or five. I mean, they they would have been uh, five and seven. Just five and passed. seven. They, both of their birthdays were in uh, January. Oh, 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 just hard to even wrap your mind around that. Um, so do you think, because you've done some more investigative work, and because you have a theory yeah. on how he killed her. So what, at this point, what were police thinking? Of, I mean, because there, there's chatter in law enforcement of what they think. They just couldn't prove it. What were they thinking in 2009, 10, 11, 12, how she died? And then what are they thinking, or what are you thinking now? Sure. I, I think the original theory um, was twofold. One... The thought was Josh might have uh, somehow poisoned Susan because the the afternoon before he went out on this supposed camping trip, he had had a uh, a neighbor friend of Susan's come over. He had served lunch for Susan and this friend, yes. uh, individually made pancakes, each on their own paper plate, which was very out of character for him. Um, however, the police were never able to find any forensic evidence uh, to support, you know, that, that he might have slipped something into that pancake. The other thought was maybe Josh had disposed of Susan's body in uh, a mine. There are thousands of open, abandoned mines in this area of Utah, and it would be uh, pretty simple for somebody to access one of those to, to drop a body in it. So the police spent years cataloging and searching hundreds of these mines uh, with no success. I think over time, the, the thinking might have, uh, might have shifted somewhat. Um, based on some of Josh's statements in his interviews with the police, he, he repeatedly said, you know, I think Susan would have gone to work. And I believe that the circumstantial evidence suggests, you know, whatever he did to Susan, he probably originally left her somewhere near her workplace uh, with the understanding that she she would be found, uh, therefore he would be able to play it off as something bad happened to her while I was out, you know, in the desert, and now I can cash in on her million dollar life insurance policy. So do you? Th so it was his intention then to kill her, not just to harm her. Th that is my belief. Uh, okay. You know, I, I think if you look at some of the steps he took um, in the year to two years prior to Susan's disappearance, they paint a picture of somebody setting the stage, right? So he's he's uh, getting her this life insurance policy. He is establishing a trust that will flow the money to him if uh, something happens to her. He has her sign over power of attorney to him. Uh, so he, he put the legal framework in place, um, I believe, with the understanding that he was going to uh, essentially kill her in a way that would allow him to capitalize on it. Did the sister to Jennifer think that he, like from a young age, was a a, a killer? You know, I don't get that sense. Um, in conversation with her, she surely says, you know, Josh was always a little odd. Mm -hmm. um, but homicidal violence is such a large step from being, you know, somebody who's socially awkward. Yeah, I would say. But in this case, maybe it was just a couple of steps away. Yeah. So then the theory, the they, there was no forensic information or they couldn't find anything in forensics. How do they do that if she's gone and the the pancakes are gone and the paper plate, I guess they look at the paper plates to see if there's any residue on it. I'm just wondering how right. you 
test for that. Yeah. So what happened was uh, when Josh Powell went in for his follow-up interview, uh, you know, the day after he came back from this camping trip, uh, the police served a search warrant on his minivan and they located uh, two trash bags. So he had apparently taken the kitchen trash out in one, uh, which included not only the paper plate, but also, you know, some uneaten portions of, of this pancake. Now, the problem is we don't know, was that Susan's? Was that this neighbor? friends um they actually sent that in for forensic testing toxicology that came back you know negative uh what i was able to piece together though which was something that wasn't reflected in the police records was about three months before susan disappeared josh powell had been in a uh, how should we say suspicious car accident a low speed oh, yeah. rear end mm-hmm. collision and um uh, had claimed yeah. to be in great pain because of this and had gone out and obtained a prescription for a medication called cyclobenzaprine, which is a muscle relaxant. Um, we know that before Josh uh, shooed this neighbor friend out of the house on Sunday, December 6th, Susan had reported feeling tired and wanting to go lay down, which All is right. something you would expect yeah. if somebody was dosed with cyclobenzaprine. And easier to get you in the van to take you, but you don't. You don't think, uh, according to some of your social media chatter, you don't think he took her to the spot. Oh, do you think he killed her at home or took her to the spot to kill her? I, I think it's likely he killed her. Well, it's tough to say because we know that police did find a small amount of blood in the living room. Uh, we know that Josh took time to clean uh, the couch and the carpet in the living room, which would suggest that some act of violence probably happened there. Uh, whether that was, you know, the act of murder or whether it was just, uh, you know, knocking her around. Yeah, domestic violence, right. Right, in a way that that made her compliant. Um, I don't think we can say uh, the safest option, you know, if you don't want prying eyes, if I'm Josh Powell, I, I'm doing the murder at the house and then relocating the body. Um, you know, otherwise you risk having Susan escape. Um, but you know, there, there were reports of, uh, unsubstantiated reports, I should say of, you know, neighbors who heard uh, horn honking from the Powell house late that night. So it is entirely possible that Susan was conscious, um, in, in the minivan when he took her out to kill her. Technology has improved so much just in, you know, the 10 or 11 years we're talking about this crime was committed. So do you think today with our uh, ring doorbells and cameras everywhere, do you think we would it been easier to peg him for this crime you know, or to track him? It, it's tough to say. Um, some of the technology that, that we saw employed in the investigation is still what we see police use today, right? Uh, they pinged his cell phone. Josh was smart enough to turn his phone off when he didn't want to be tracked. Yeah. Um, but the more video evidence that you can find, certainly like when Josh disappeared with this rental car uh, and put all those miles on it, he had to have stopped 
somewhere for gas. And you would assume that the gas station would have had back then security camera video showing him in a specific place at a specific time, which could narrow down uh, the area to search. Um, that kind of uh, evidence was never found. So, you know, the more of that there is available, uh, the easier it can be to track down that kind of um, timestamp footprint. But it also just relies on people who saw something coming forward to say something. When did he hire counsel again? Did he have it in that first interview or any any of the suspicions with the police at first? Josh had a <laughs> because Josh was Josh, he had a subscription service to a basically a dial a lawyer kind of um, thing. Oh yeah. And so he was talking to yeah. a lawyer very quickly. Uh, one can imagine that that service dealing with somebody calling saying I'm under suspicion for the homicide of my wife would probably say you need better counsel. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we know he he lawyered up uh, with a with a high power criminal defense lawyer here in Utah just a couple of days after she disappeared. Yeah, but as, as a journalist, you and I both need to be objective to think if we were accused of something, we would get the best attorney. You know, Absol I'm just thinking in his regard. I, I was raised by family of attorneys. There are so many attorneys in my family. So we've just always been taught that. But we get so suspicious when Josh did it because I was like, aha, there you go. Yeah. Oh, you know? Lisa, I'm right there with you. I mean, if, <laughs> if the police came knocking to my door, I have done this job enough to know that the first and only thing I would say, even if I strongly believed I had done nothing wrong, was lawyer. Right. I'm not going right. to talk to you without my lawyer. Right. My, oh, my dad taught me that years ago, and I've just never forgotten it. But I, I'm sure to somebody I might look guilty, but I'm not exciting <laughs> enough to do anything. Well, but, uh, but, but I mean, criminal. that's a great point because Josh in the public, right? Josh was excoriated in the public. Mm -hmm. um, everybody, you know, was calling him on social media horrible and, and they might they might have been right in calling him a murderer. Yeah. Um, but it's not the court of public opinion that, uh, you know, tries and that's convicts right. a person of a crime. Well, we couldn't even get him charged. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's just uh, the injustice in this. That's why I just grieve for the Cox family in uh, not only burying their child. Well, not even burying. Well, what did they do for um, a memorial for Susan? I don't think I remember. You know, they uh, there is a headstone at the cemetery in then uh, Puyallup that has her name, the date of her disappearance, uh, and also her children, Charlie and Brayden. Uh, they are buried together there in a single casket, oh. and there is a plot reserved uh, for the day, hopefully, when when Susan is found. Um, the episode, uh, Dave, when the um, child protective services, whoever the social worker was that's dropping the boys off because of these supervised visitations and the door slammed in her face and she's calling 911. This is when I when I listen to that, I remember thinking, oh gosh, the technology we have now, 911 kind of knows where you are, but mm. she didn't know exactly where she was. She was trying, she just knew how to get there. She was trying to explain that I, she smelled the gasoline. You know, there were she knew what she was doing. This that, That's part of her intu intuition was to know something wasn't right. And 911 just seems like they stammered oh, yeah. with her and were like, yeah, we'll get somebody over there. We're kind of busy today. We'll see what we're going to do. 
Not that it would have saved those boys' lives, but uh, that's a hard episode to listen to. Oh, it was, I can tell you, very difficult to put together. Uh, <laughs> that audio is one of the most frustrating pieces of sound I've dealt with in my entire career. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, when I listen to it, even now, it just makes me furious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, again, uh, yeah, furious and then heartache for what she was trying to express. She was extremely calm, though. Yes. Um, and and maybe that's it. The um, people on the other line didn't take her as seriously, but she was like, listen to me. I know what's going on. And she was like, Josh Powell, like he was a common name. Mm -hmm. Like if you were talking about Justin Bieber, you know, she was saying, uh, Josh Powell and the people on the other line didn't seem to really wince at that. And they didn't move quickly enough for her. And, and again, that the, the home exploded. Is that what he did? Did he torch the back bedroom? So he had, um, gone out and filled two five-gallon gas cans. Uh, I, I didn't go into a lot of the gritty detail on how he carried out the murder-suicide in the podcast, uh, in part because it's actually really not super important how he did it. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it's enough to say he had prepared by, uh, you know, getting 10 gallons of gasoline after locking this uh, visitation supervisor, Elizabeth Griffin Hall, out of the house. He spread one of those gas cans around the house. And then mm. basically, I think the, the forensics from uh, the house said he sat on the other one and, and lit it off. Um, the The fire spread so quickly that it essentially blew the roof off of the house. So that's why you hear them talk about it as an explosion. Yes, yes. Um, and it was very quickly just all-consuming. Uh, there was nothing left of that house except for ash. Well, was the reason, the impetus for that, Dave, that um, he was not gaining custody or he felt like the jig was up? Yeah, this was a really interesting part that came out in one of our bonus episodes. Um Five days before the murder-suicide took place, Josh had gone to court expecting he was going to regain custody of his children. Uh, at the time, the police in Utah had released some evidence, digital evidence, to the court in Washington, which suggested uh, that Josh Powell might have been looking at uh, incestuous cartoon pornography on the Internet. Um mm. I was able to independently learn that that was not the case. Those images had been downloaded onto a device prior to it coming into the Powell house, uh, something that the police did not know at the time. So Josh Powell goes to court. He hears that, you know, police in Utah have found this cartoon incest porn on your computer. Uh, I believe it's reasonable that in his mind, he's thinking this is fabricated evidence. And no matter what I do, uh, I'm going to lose here. Uh, part of the condition that the court placed on, on Josh at that time was you have to undergo a psychosexual evaluation, which would include a polygraph exam in which they could ask him anything about Susan. And so it was it was really yeah. end yeah. of the end of yeah. the road for Josh at that point. He didn't want to. OK, final question. What is your theory about how she died? Because you posted something recently I thought was interesting. Yeah, there, uh, we probably don't have time to go into the full depth of it. But <laughs> okay. jo Josh, uh, Josh loved his power tools. And there are some 
evidentiary reasons I believe he might have employed uh, a, a power tool, uh, probably even just as something you know to bludgeon Susan with, um, something that he had close at hand, something that had some heft that uh, he could have smacked her with and then mm. later destroyed with a, uh, a torch, an oxyacetylene cutting torch that he had in his garage. There's a piece of evidence that the police found uh, in one of their searches that is a metal object that was never identified, even though the, the FBI you know, ran a metallurgical analysis on it. Uh, I conducted an experiment where I obtained a basically the same tool that I believe Josh used. I destroyed it with a torch, and wouldn't you know it, it looks pretty darn similar yeah. to what yeah. uh, the police found in his minivan. Um, you know, I, we also found some some GPS track evidence to suggest Josh Powell had, uh, you know, 10 days after Susan disappeared, stopped at the side of a canal in southern Idaho in the middle of the night. Um, and so I can... I can present a circumstantial case to suggest that uh, that he might have, you know, killed her in the house, left her somewhere by her work, later relocated her body with uh, a rental car, and ultimately, uh, you know, dumped it somewhere up in Idaho. And again, it is a vast amount of property and land that it would, it's just going to be the right person that comes up on the body that day that's ever going to... Um, give you closure to that. But Dave, if you don't do another bit of work, journalistic work in your life, you've done more than anybody I know. Have you received the ultimate pen on the ultimate awards on all this? Whether <laughs> I, in radio, I forget the, well, Edward R. Murrow is the I think for TV, but for radio, the Marconi Award. You know, we, we, uh, we've been graciously awarded a, uh, a national Moreau award for some of our social media okay. work. Uh, that being said, you know, I'll, I'll just say in closing, the reason why, uh, I did this, the reason why KSL, the company that I work for backed this was not to win awards. It was to hopefully shine a light on, on this issue of domestic abuse and try in any way to prevent, uh, anybody else from going through what Susan did. And right there, it makes it so worth it. Dave, thanks so much for being here. I'll put all the show notes, has all the information where you can find thecoldpodcast.com if you haven't listened to it yet. <laughs> I mean, come on. And any other anything else we can find. But good job, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? And to reach out, email me, lisa at lisafishersaid.com. Thank you.